This program deals with themes of an adult nature and is intended for a mature audience. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. Our differences worldwide would vanish if we were facing an alien threat from outside this world. We must guard against the military-industrial complex. Exopolitics, paranormal phenomena, and deep analysis of current world events. From somewhere in the desert, between Area 51 and Roswell, blasting across the planet, the Manticore Network proudly presents Fairy Tales. Because the truth will set you free. Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! The power they took from the people will return to the people. And so long as men die, liberty will never perish. Soldiers, don't fight for slavery, fight for liberty! The only thing we have to fear is fear itself! Sooner or later, though. You always have to wake up. Be skeptical, but don't close your mind. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas, alternative media for discerning minds. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, make yourself at home. I want to thank all our members for your loyalty and support. Tonight's special guest will share with us how modern science has confirmed a belief held by many ancient cultures. Solar activity is closely linked with human behavior. He asserts that the sun is endowed with intelligence and consciousness and also provides a provocative paradigm for understanding the self-organizing capacities of the entire universe. Gregory Sams will be with us shortly. And segment two of my talk entitled Truth Uncensored, my journey so far is available on Veritas TV. Thank you for all your positive comments. I really didn't think I was going to conduct this lecture. Why? Because I don't like to talk about myself. I prefer to ask questions. But Marjorie, the organizer for Tucson Awake and Aware, convinced me that sharing my story will be the best alternative. 
and I think she was right. It allowed me to connect with people face to face, share my story, and also it allowed me to summarize what we've all experienced with all our wonderful guests here on Veritas. In the next few days, I'll be uploading the final part, segment three. So go to Veritas TV to watch part one and two. To listen to tonight's full show and the new material on Veritas TV, become a member. You'll receive instant access to all our inventory. And remember, Veritas survives on your voluntary subscriptions only. No sponsorship equals no censorship. Think about the next time you spend $7.95. Do you really receive any value? That is what you pay per month as a Veritas member, and you receive over 124 shows, all in CD audio quality. Veritas TV, our very unique Manticore forum, where you can interact with enlightened people around the world to discuss everything that matters. Just go to the subscribe link of our website, VeritasShow.com, and take Veritas with you. You can also download our latest show via iTunes. During these days of uncertainty, the uncensored truth is priceless. Don't wait any longer. Subscribe today. You can also purchase our futuristic 8GB metal-cased USB drive with Seasons 1 or 2 with bonus material. Go to the Veritas store for more information. And don't forget, get your MMS right from us. It's better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Listen to Jim Humble's interview for more information. And if you need to get in touch with me, click on the contact button of our website and join me on Facebook. And now, get ready to once again consider the impossible as possible. The sun is a conscious living organism residing in a thriving galactic community, thinking stellar thoughts that span the entire universe. Gregory Sams is coming up next. This is Mel Fabregas, and you're listening to Veritas. Don't go anywhere. and you're listening to The Veritas Show. The story of Gregory Samps is the remarkable story of the British counterculture since the 1960s. In 1967, with his brother Craig, he co-founded Seed Restaurant, the first natural and organic eatery in the UK, which was frequented by his friends John Lennon and Yoko Ono. This was quickly followed by Ceres Grain Store in the Portobello Road, Harmony Magazine, and the Whole Earth Foods, the all-organic brand in the early 1970s. In 1982, he launched the first veggie burger and was soon selling over 250,000 burgers each week. In the mid-1980s, Gregory dedicated his life to the new scientific ideas 
of Chaos Theory and founded Strange Attractions, the world's first ever shop dedicated to Chaos Theory from which he created and sold computer fractal designs for everything from posters to t-shirts to jigsaw puzzles. His interest in Chaos Theory led to an interest in consciousness that led him to writing his new book, Son of God, which will be the focus of tonight's interview. And directly from London, England, I have the pleasure of introducing for the first time Gregory Sams. Hello, Mr. Sams, and welcome to Veritas. How are you? I'm very well. Pleased to be here. Thank you. Great introduction. It's my pleasure. How do you prefer to be called, Gregory or Greg? Um, either. Um, I, I'm really not. Call me Greg if you like. I used to share an office with my brother whose name was Craig, and it used to get very confusing. But uh... So that you don't think I'm calling your brother, I call you Gregory, okay? Okay, thanks. <laughs> well, first of all, as I was telling you offline, anything about the sun interests me because it seems that the sun is waking up, as many people say. First of all, how did you switch from natural, organic, and vegetarian food into researching the sun? Well, I think the... Um... They're both connected in that uh, with natural foods, I was connecting people to part important part of our world that they completely lost touch with. Because back in the 60s, we people looked forward to the day when science would enable us to eat four or five pills a day and we could do away with all this muss and fuss of growing and cooking and eating. And that was really the perception that people had. And um, when we sort of came out and my brother and I telling people, well, what you eat affects your health, they, they looked at us like we were talking garbage. That was really hippy-dippy stuff. You are what you eat. Ha, ha, ha. Right. Back right. to our hamburgers and, and Coca-Cola. Um, and with the sun, it's connecting people again to a very, very important part of our world. So I'm hoping to, to you know – help our son make a comeback because it's, you know, we've been keeping it in the cold for a long time. We've lost touch with it. And that's a really extraordinary and, and sad state of affairs when you consider, you know, what a obviously important essential part of our lives it is. So it's, I mean, in between there was chaos theory, there was all those transgressions, but it's still really connecting people to parts of our world that we've forgotten and and very important parts and i think it's uh, it's an easy attitude to change because recognition of the sun as what it was is, is very intuitive it's so intuitive that it was once commonplace across the world um, wherever you went and uh it's really time to to bring the sun back in from the cold and you said something so important what you mentioned about you are what you eat now, today it's a known fact, but back then, as you said, you were considered crazy if you said that. But this has always been the case, Gregory, with revolutionary ideas. Do you think your idea about the sun being conscious will be accepted the same way? Ridicule first, because that's how we react to the unknown? I think, I think it has to be. And people have, in many parts of the world, pulled away from that absolute dependence on religion to tell them everything they need to know about spirituality. Um, and there's nothing really big that has come to replace that. I mean, we've, we've gotten into, people have gotten into yoga and meditation and lots of really exciting ways to get in touch with, with ourselves and our, on our inner selves. But the actual, um, 
getting in touch with the sun, it's a, it's a very spiritually important thing to do. And I think we're, we're hardwired to do that. And we've just had those wires really consciously disconnected from our being over quite a few centuries now. So I, I think, I think we'll definitely get back to that position and that's, but, but I have to say, my book is you know, Son of God, S-U-N of God, of course, is the only book out there that deals with this. And I went into London's sort of oldest occult bookshop um, a couple years, well, last year with my book, introducing it to them. And the owner manageress there, Geraldine, she was delighted. And she opened her, her, her arms out and said, we have this many books in here on the moon. But we don't have a single book on the sun. So it's it's great to be opening up a um, a new area here, as, as exciting as explaining to people that we are what we eat. What about the big capital O between the G and the D? Um, well, I had a, a lovely young Jewish girl who was working with me at one point in the beginning of the book, and she was reading through some of the stuff that I was writing. And she said, hey, Greg, you can't capitalize God when you're talking about different aspects of a universal spirit, because when you capitalize something, it's, you know, it's, it's one thing. Yeah. And, and I was, I was using, you know, a capital G to talk about the Christian God and the son as a God and different, different approaches to that. And, um, so I thought about it. She had a point, and I thought, well, I'll capitalize the O because the O looks like a sun. It's got the same shape as the sun. Right. And right. it also symbolizes oneness. And I was, I'm really happy with that. I see. Well, once you look at the cover of the book, that is the first thing that, that jumps at you. So it, it's a good thing. But without our sun, Gregory, every living being dies. Many ancient cultures worshipped the sun for that reason. Is that why they gave it divine status? Absolutely. It was, it was, people felt the light when they got, when they had a sunny day, they felt happy because, because that's a vibration that we're getting. That's what the light is. And they, well, it did, people didn't used to have this kind of arrogant attitude that human beings were the only thing that experienced consciousness in the whole world. Um, And when you consider how ancient the universe is and what a sort of snap of the fingers we've been here for in the history of the universe, to suppose that we are the only, the only thing that the only vessel of consciousness and intelligence and thought is really pretty arrogant. And uh, that, that didn't used to apply. So when people looked at the sun and they, felt the energies and saw what was going on, they said, okay, this is a conscious being. This has got consciousness and it's consciousness of a much higher level than ours, high enough to accord it divine status. And in studying history, I'm sorry, go ahead. You didn't finish your statement. Yeah, no, that was, that was. In studying history, you may know how the conquistadores had no mercy for the indigenous people. They were treated like animals because, according to them, they had no soul. 
Do you think the same applies to consciousness? We are so arrogant to think that human beings are the only ones who experience this. Do you think the sun, of course, of course you believe the sun does, but other planets and animals have consciousness? Yeah, I, I absolutely think so. And consciousness and free will, what, you know, down from worms to, to redwood trees. I, mean, I think a 3,000-year-old redwood tree, to just sort of treat that as a completely, you know, not, you know, unthinking, uncommon. It's a different type of consciousness, obviously. We can't apply human styles of consciousness to everything else. But trees are the, the lords of the vegetable world, and they used to be respected and revered throughout the world. I mean, they had, they had severe punishments in, in Germany um, in the sort of, you know, a, a, a millennia ago for people who would damage trees thoughtlessly. It was, uh, you know, there was, there used to be a respect for our whole world. And I, and I don't, if, even if they'd had the tools in the ancient world, I don't think they would have leveled a mountain in order to get a few ounces of gold out of it. Absolutely. And, you know, going back to the sun, there was a time when if you worshipped the sun and not the God-organized religion wanted you to worship, fill in the blanks, you could be killed. Are we waking up to the sun's importance once again? Well, that's my object, is to wake us up to that importance again. We, we are, you know, solar science is studying many aspects of the sun, and I'm just, I'm so impressed with the way that they use their tools to find out what's going on inside the sun, to measure the electromagnetic fields, that are an array of electromagnetic fields that are coming out of it. We're, we appreciate the 11 and 22 and 88 year cycles that the sun works in, in terms of sunspot cycles and solar flares and coronal mass ejections. So we're, we're recognizing it, but at the same time, it's this cold mechanical approach. Like, like the most important thing about it, that it's a living conscious being, we're unaware of. And you were measuring, you know, how big it is and what it does and all these other important things that have an impact on us. But we're still missing, missing the really big point. And that's kind of what I'm, what I'm putting across. And you mentioned solar maximums. I always bring this subject up. The following up, and I want to get your take on this. During September 11th, 1990, solar maximum, we had former president... George W. H. W. Bush here in the United States mentioned the New World Order. Fast mm -hmm. forward to September 11, 2001, another solar maximum. And let's fast forward again to September 11, 2012, the equinox, another solar maximum. Why are these days so important for people who don't seem to overtly be paying that much attention to the sun? Well, perhaps they are paying attention to it, and, and we don't know or perhaps the vibrations coming from the sun are affecting and modulating our behavior. It's a, it's a very, very unexplored area, and it, it's not one that I profess to be a particular expert in, but I, you know, I do recognize on the most fundamental level that we're, our spirits are lifted on a, on a sunny day. And that's that's a huge effect, feeling True. feeling good and happy. And that's 
that's that's and yet we don't even appreciate that you know people say oh yeah it's a nice sunny day i feel good but they don't think why they don't think why when i go into a, a dark room switch the lights on really bright and turn the heating up to max i don't get that same buzz what is it about the solar vibration it's just of sunlight that is doing that but uh, uh, on top of just the sunlight there are electromagnetic fields coming out of the sun that the heliosphere embraces the whole solar system and protects it from cosmic rays the solar wind part of the heliosphere interacts with the earth's magnetic field and produces these glorious auroras at both of our poles and send and then there's a there's a uh, magnetic portal that nasa discovered um, in 2008 that is the diameter of the earth and it extends from the corona of the sun which is like the magnetic field outside the sun it, it, it it's bigger than the sun itself and this magnetic portal can it's a constant umbilical cord connecting the earth to the sun and every eight minutes there is something occurs that they call a flux transfer event where tons of high energy particles pass back and forth between the sun and earth and this is all affecting everything that is on this planet not just human beings but everything else that's going on and it's but we don't really know how it's affecting it yet or what those connections are but but that's you know, a fantastic area to be explored once um once scientists that accept that perhaps there's something going on that is not pure accident and mechanics. I just thought about something. It is proven that DNA emits photons with such regularity that researchers compare the phenomenon to an ultra-weak laser. Photons are light. Do you think the photons emitted from the sun have an effect on our DNA? I, I think they do, but not being a scientist, I can't really say yes, X, Y, and Z, they do. But uh, we, are, we are built from sunlight. We're, we're, you know, we are a, a form of sunlight manifesting as matter. Um, so I think everything about the sun is going to affect everything about us and that's going to include our dna um but i can't really give you chapter and verse on that Wish that's fine that's fine and this is a topic for another show but sometimes i wonder you in the uk i'm sure you know what chemtrails are if right. the fact that mostly populated areas are sprayed with chemtrails if he has something to do with trying to block the effects from the solar rays, but that's a different topic. But anyway, you mentioned in your book of the perfect orbits planets display around the sun, and they don't deviate, yet it takes our brightest minds on Earth a long time to keep a satellite in orbit, perhaps for about 10 years, and still the satellites need to continue being adjusted. Do you think our solar system, maybe even the universe, was a random occurrence like throwing marbles on the floor, or was it planned? Um... Neither. <laughs> I think it was built from the bottom up, like just about everything we, all the order and design we see in the natural world is built from the bottom up. So I don't think there was anybody outside the system planning 
what it was going to be like ahead of time. And I certainly don't think that it's a bunch of marbles bouncing around accidentally. I mean, both of those, both of those positions are pretty untenable. But if you recognize a consciousness that extends throughout the universe, you, you, you can appreciate it building from the bottom up and, and you have, um, let's just talk about consciousness for a minute. Um, we've got, we're conscious, we're, we're, we recognize that. And we have, as I said, this arrogant belief that nothing else is. Mm -hmm. But recently, um, I was talking about my book to an, an old school friend of mine, actually, who now is, a, now is a professor of artificial intelligence in New Zealand. And he directed me to the work of two Princeton professors, Professor Koch and Cochin, Cochin, who created what's called the free will theorem. And they proved mathematically that if human beings have free will, then so do subatomic particles. And if human beings don't have free will, then subatomic particles don't. Uh, now, as you may realize, you probably realize, a lot of scientists don't believe that human beings have free will. And they have this notion that everything you do, from what you pick for dinner tonight, to where you go on holiday, to to what word I say, was pre is predetermined by events long before we were born, going right back to the arrangement of particles at the Big Bang. And that's, I mean, I, there was a program on Melvin, Melvin Bragg's um, on Radio 4 this morning that, where they were discussing that. And you have scientists who do believe that everything was predetermined. And... Um, but if you do have free will, and I, I believe it's a, it's a no-brainer that human beings have free will, um, then so do subatomic particles, electrons, atoms. And I don't think we can exclude everything in between electrons and human beings and say, well, they've got free will, we've got free will, but nothing in between does. And if you have this from the bottom up, consciousness, free will on, on whatever, you know, minuscule level, uh, a grain of sand might, might experience that or be permeated by it, then you have an understanding why every beach has its own characteristics. Molecules of water form Gulf streams and currents that connect oceans, take material back and forth between different oceans. In the air, they, they organize into hurricanes and tornadoes. And we know a lot of the mechanical scientific principles that are at play in a thundercloud, which is quite a complicated, you know, there's a lot, lot going on there. Um, but because we understand some of those principles at play, we then say, oh, well, there's nothing going on. There's no consciousness because we understand what's going on. Yet when we look at the human body and we analyze cells and look at the DNA and we see what the heart's pumping blood around and we see neurons in the brain sending signals and chem chemicals back and forth, we don't say, well, there's nothing going on there. There's no consciousness because we understand the physical principles at play. Um, and we, and, and, you know, we don't have much to do with those physical principles of our body. We don't control directly 
our digestion, our circulation, our breathing. It's all pretty much automatic. We can modulate it, of course, but it takes study to do that. Um, and even in our brains, we have this bottom-up organization. So I really see the universe as it was a, it was a baby when it started out. But over the billions of years, it's taken shape. The, 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 those clouds of cosmic dust first organized into stars, into, into energy-creating devices that turned hydrogen and helium into all the elements of the, of the periodic table. And then with sunlight, with energy, and with all-pervading consciousness, you can call it chi or prana or the Holy Spirit or orgon energy, those materials formed into rocks and mountains and weather systems and human beings and worms and stars and comets and all the other wonderful components that, that hang together and make up this gorgeous universe. And since you're men mentioning uh, free will and pre-planned destiny, just let me just inject something quickly. I recently took a dowsing class, and the teacher told me that she sees auras. And she also found out that an aura disappears maybe days before you die. But just this morning, I received an email from a, a tour guide in Sedona. And she knows this lady who owns a uh, store where they take aura pictures. You probably heard about the sweat lodge here in Arizona where a lot of people died uh, over a year ago. A lot of people who are listening to us know what that is. But anyway, a lot of people went to this lady to take pictures the day before the event. And she wondered why some of them, she could not, she would take a picture and the aura would not show up. And she had been doing this for years. And she would take a picture again and again and no aura to some people. And she just, really? she just found out today by looking at the list of the people who died that the people who did not show an aura of the list that she has were the ones who died the next day. How do you explain that? Good God. Well, you caught me off guard there. I didn't even know about this uh, sweat lodge incident. Yes. Aura is um, disappearing before we die. It's one of those things that, you know, how do you explain it? And, and she has the pictures to show, look at these people, no auras, and the next day they die. So that almost proves that free will is, is, is not part of the plan and our destiny is more or less, you know, written in stone in a way, don't you think? No, I don't think, I don't think it proves that. It's, uh, it shows that, uh, you know, that aura leaving uh, doesn't necessarily, uh, you know, that, that, that's the result of our actions and our behavior throughout our life has led us to that situation. Um, I mean, I, I long ago sort of gave up any, uh, you know, blaming other things for stuff. So, I mean, I, I think we're responsible for everything that happens to us, whether it's a brick falling on, on our head off a building site or, you know, losing our job because we performed badly. Right. Um, but, and that's what's led to this situation. Why the aura should depart a day or two before we die, if that's the case, I have not come across that before. Um, I, I can't explain, but I still see that as a result of our conscious activities throughout our life. I don't see why that would, um, 
be a disconnect from our free will. It makes you wonder if one of those people would have seen the pictures and said, well, maybe I'm not going to get into uh, the sweat lodge. And unfortunately, they may be hit by a car. But anyway, that's a, that's a different topic. Uh, give us some examples that you found showing that the sun is conscious and reacts accordingly. Um, okay, well, I'm getting a bit anthropomorphic here. Okay. But uh, first of all, stars have partners. They don't, you know, almost all stars have a partner star that they travel through the galaxy with and they circle each other. They're disguised. Like a the binary star. star system, you mean? Yeah, it's called, yeah, the very romantic astronomers call it a binary system. Right. I call it a couple. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And and they're, they're described as behaving like a couple of figure skaters um, as they travel through the galaxy. Um, every star has its own unique electromagnetic signature or fingerprint or whatever you want to call it that it sends out. And then I've, I've been to scientific stall that had a demonstration titled Songs of the Stars, and you could listen to the different stars there. Um, they live in communities and groups. They're not they're no more sort of scattered randomly throughout the galaxy than people are scattered randomly throughout the United States. They live in communities. Um, they have this sort of electromagnetic fields that connect to the, to the earth. Um, I'm not really sure uh, to me after you know, I spent seven years writing son of God And I was amazed and astounded by, by what I found out about stars in the course of writing the book. But when I finished it, the thing that amazed me most was that we don't recognize it as conscious um, with all the information and knowledge we have, you know, and, and that we've lost that, that recognition of stars as, as conscious entities. Um, Because it does, it does seem really, really obvious. And I know I can't, you know, I can't scientific proof. Um, well, we don't have scientific proof that we have consciousness and scientists debate it. Um, as I was saying earlier, and some scientists regard consciousness as the grand illusion because they can't measure it. They can't, it's a, it's a, the energy of life is energy and that's an invisible thing that we can only detect and measure certain aspects of it, but we can't really see it or understand it. So consciousness is the great mystery, which is perhaps why some you know, scientists who accept that human beings are conscious still have traditionally ruled it out for all other animals. You do have, and this is only in the last 10 or 20 years, Some scientists going out on a limb and saying, well, I think orangutans are conscious and dolphins are conscious because they just they play for the hell of it. And they can recognize themselves in, in mirrors and they take sort of human humans behavior and say, well, yes, they're manifesting human behavior in this, these aspects. So I think they're conscious. But a lot of scientists still don't accept that. Um, so it's, you know, we can't really prove the sun is conscious, but it's in stars, but their behavior does indicate that they're not 
marbles bouncing around in the universe. And as I studied solar science, it's filled with mysteries, unexplained phenomenon. And as long as we regard it as a you know, our sun as a marble, we are going to have mysteries that are unsolvable about its behavior because marbles don't behave with the same consciousness as highly energetic beings like human beings and stars. Absolutely. And you mentioned the sound waves that emanate from, from the sun. You know that, for example, the 528 hertz frequency has been found to be emanating from Jupiter. That is the healing frequency. Have you looked into what sound frequencies the sun may be emitting as well? Um, I, I didn't. I didn't get into that in my in my studies of the sun. That's. I mean, I, the, the whole surface of it vibrates like a drum. Yes. And that, that's where helioseismologists, as they're called, find out a lot about what's going on inside the sun from the from the nature of those vibrations. But it's um. It's sound frequencies I haven't haven't really studied now, but I'm interested in that Jupiter emanation. And, and we used the word worship. Even ancient culture worshipped the sun, and then when religions came along, they worshipped their god. Why does it always have to be the word worship, which is more of a religious term? Why can we just say respect, recognition, gratitude for the sun without us having to get on our knees to worship the sun or a god? Yeah, well, the, the, the worship thing, the, the nature of the word has changed somewhat over the centuries. In the Vedic sense, worship meant imbuing the qualities of that which you are worshiping. And that didn't in, involve throwing yourself on the ground or on your knees or going into a particular building or following particular routines there are routines that sort of enhance the ability to absorb those energies but that's what worship was about it wasn't saying i'm a worthless sinner oh forgive me uh, that's kind of what we've connected with it because it's been overlaid with the christian concept for many centuries so maybe we need a new word since that word has been used or lost some of its meaning but that's that, that you know, you've got respect and recognition and appreciation, but you're also absorbing qualities and energies, and that's what the worship should be about. Right. But, yeah. Now, speaking of the consciousness of the sun, how do you compare it to human consciousness? And I know that consciousness is the least understood aspect for human beings. <laughs> Good. Well, how do you expect me to answer the question then? Uh, <laughs> How do I compare it to human consciousness? I think there's perhaps a connection. I mean, we're all part of the conscious universe. Um, so we are all one in that sense. And it's curious that when a human being achieves some sort of a great status and is admired from far and wide, they're called stars because of their sort of this massive consciousness that people imbue them with and, and credit them with, if you like, even though they might just be ordinary people, they're called stars. Um, the Egyptians really sought to connect 
with the sun and with stars. And they built, you know, there, there, there used to be ancient technologies that would enable us to, to channel that energy, perhaps back and forth. We're not really sure what Stonehenge and the pyramids were for, but they weren't just monuments saying, oh, great, we respect the sun, we're thankful for the sunlight, so let's build a big thing to show that. They were some sort of a communication, connection, scientific device, if you like. Um, and it was much more than just figuring out when to plant the crops and what day midsummer. You, know, you don't need sort of thousands of tons of stone to have a marker to tell you when the sun is at a particular point on the summer solstice. Um, so there's definitely a, a consciousness connect there. Um, and I really hope that as a result of us bringing the sun back into our lives in a conscious level, we'll, we'll be able to discover more of that. And I'd love scientists to be doing that. Um, to when, once they overcome the um, taboo that the church put on them centuries ago and start recognizing other consciousnesses, that, that, that's great fields to study. And let's have people doing it scientifically rather than um, priests and mullahs and uh, people wearing funny outfits and telling us we've got to do this and that or we'll go to hell. And when you said um, Egypt, a couple of words came to mind, Hypatia and the Library of Alexandria. It yeah. really makes you wonder if manuals on how to build pyramids and other important things were there and were lost during the burning, or were they really lost? I mean, my question is, were they really lost, or do you think perhaps this knowledge may be under a vault somewhere in the Vatican? Because it strikes me as, why would they want to completely eradicate all this knowledge and not keep it to themselves or, or hijack it so they could limit humanity? What's your take on this? Um, well, first of all, I, I absolutely agree, and it's... Uh I just think it's so amusing that we have all we, we had this great mystery of how they built the pyramids. And undoubtedly, there was a section in the Library of Alexandria telling us how to build pyramids. It was, you know, they've been doing it for thousands of years. Um, so uh, whether it's under a vault in the Vatican or not, I don't know. There was a serious program of destruction of pagan knowledge when, when Christianity became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Right. And everything pagan was considered bad, and whatever they could find was destroyed. The Library of Alexandria, the, I think it was 17 mystery schools, and because there was no printing press, there were not that many copies of books about, and people knew where they were, so they could track them down, and it was a, it was a penalty to hold on to, to books that had been proscribed, whether it was old gospels or, or books on the sun. Um, and we saw it recently in, in Cambodia when Pol Pot just thought communism is where it's at, and anybody who's sort of educated and intellectual is going to be fighting this. So if you wore glasses, or if you're a doctor or a teacher, um, you were murdered. And millions of people were murdered. Be and, and there was no attempt 
to retain the knowledge and information they had because we wanted everybody he wanted everybody to go back to the land to get their hands dirty farming and and not think about you know telephones sewage systems books anything like that and i think that's the sort of scorched earth policy that manifested in the in the fourth century um and i I, i'd like to think there were some things in the vaults of the vatican i mean I, i have to say though I mean, bring to mind one of my favorite beverages is Montezuma's, it's called Montezuma's Secret. And it's the cocoa drink that the Emperor Montezuma of the Aztecs used to drink, his personal recipe. And it's cocoa and um, damiana and chili and spearmint and red clover and a mixture of ingredients. And he drank 30 or 40 cups of this a day. And when he was murdered by the missionaries and the conquistadores, um, they copied this recipe down because he was 70 years old and he looked after 200 concubines. And they said, well, this must be a secret. So they, they copied, the, they, they made a record of his recipe and it's languished in the vaults of the Vatican, as you just mentioned, for centuries until a couple of American hippies discovered it. And and I don't know what they were, how they had access down there to it, but they cr- create that recipe. And I have to, I have to buy it from them in California. <laughs> um, but I love it. It's a fantastic, every, everybody I give it to just is blown away. So this is, this is fantastic. This is, this is what cocoa should be. Not just, not just cacao powder, milk and sugar, you know? So, so maybe there is other stuff down there. Um, I can see a lot of our listeners immediately putting a stop to the tape here and uh, googling <laughs> Montezuma's secret. Well, it's uh, it's God. I hope I, I hope I'm going to run out of stocks now. But it's the Botanical Preservation Society, or the people who are aptly named, who who put that wonderful drink together. Yeah, interesting. How did they get access to it if it was uh, hidden in the Vatican? I don't know. They might have had permission to be looking at something else and then they stumbled across this um i'm pretty sure it's not a brilliant marketing ploy because they sell it in silly plastic bags and they've never made any attempt to market this thing properly (laughs) interesting now going back to the sun are we connected to the sun via its magnetic field and i ask because i've always wondered what would happen to us if we became technologically advanced enough to to leave our galaxy would we be able to survive without this direct connection to the sun or to even earth that's a really interesting question and i i've thought about that myself because as i mentioned earlier the heliosphere which is it's a electromagnetic field that spins out of the sun the particles come off the sun it's described as being a spiraling electromagnetic bubble and it comes out and encompasses the whole solar system and if it were not there the solar system would be eaten away over a few billion years by by cosmic rays smashing into it and this heliosphere protects it but it's it's a field and we're in it and i don't know i mean if, if a human being's in a spaceship and he travels outside of our solar system um, I'd be, I'd be very, I'm very curious to find out what would happen. Uh, it's, I mean, they've got, 
uh, is it the Voyager, the spaceship that's just finally left the heliosphere, or about to leave the heliosphere. But there's no sort of life on it to to find out what happens. So it's an interesting question, but that's something that really only experimentation is going to find out. Good point about but, the, the Voyager. They have found that it's slowing down almost as if it's facing some uh, resistance. It really makes you wonder if they don't want us outside of the neighborhood. <laughs> I can imagine why they might not, yeah. <laughs> whoever they are. <laughs> But I keep looking at the at SOHO. You probably know what I'm talking about, the yeah, NASA yeah. Solar Heliospheric Observatory. Have you seen these objects, some of them the size of Earth, going in and out of, of the sun? I've seen some YouTube videos on that. And I'm not convinced of them. I, I, I've, I'm not had NASA come out and say these things are there and then obviously with the conspiracy concept, maybe they wouldn't if they were there. Maybe they've etched them out. Um, I haven't seen official verification of those and I've seen some some commentary on them which didn't make sense and the, the lighting didn't look correct and the shadows didn't correct look correct when you're recognizing that the light is coming from the, the sun. Um, so I, I'm, I'm not convinced that they are there. If they are there, I'd probably give it more thought, but I, I don't know whether that thought would get me a conclusion on it or not, because if they are there, it's pretty damn mysterious. I heard uh, it was pixelation. I don't buy that. But I also wouldn't buy, unfortunately, I'm jaded, I wouldn't buy anything that NASA comes forward with. Uh, I think that NASA is simply a a uh, window dressing for, for the rest, but that's a different story. But the reason why I bring this up is because of what's known as latitude 19.47 or latitude 19.5. We have a lot of monuments here on Earth, uh, volcanoes, the pyramids. Uh, we landed Apollo on latitude 19.5 on the moon. Jupiter has the, their black spot on, the, on, on latitude 19.5. Mars has its biggest volcano, latitude 19.5. And a lot of the coronal mass ejections are seen north and south, latitude 19.5, and these objects I was referring to. Have you looked into latitude 19.5? I haven't. Let me just make one thing clear, which is that I'm not a, um, I'm not a scientist. And I haven't studied a lot of the scientific details here. I've, I've, I've studied enough to put my case together on how the sun is built up and why it's much, much more li likely to be a, a life form than a, a marble and or a dead ball of gas. Mm -hmm. But um, and for me, that's that's. That's the important thing to put into the rest of the picture, and I'm really hoping other people do, because there's a lot of people studying these interesting correlations that we find in the solar system. And, and I mean, as there are a lot of people studying the, the, the Mayans and the Egyptians and the line, lining up of their temples and, and monuments and Stonehenge, and people with very open minds who still have not kind of open themselves up to, to the recognition that the thing that, that, that well, in the case of the ancient monuments, the thing that connected all those ancient cultures was the recognition of the, of the sun and stars as conscious life forms. 
and that's why they built those monuments. And meanwhile, we're looking at the details of how they line up and and with it, without that other essential part of the jigsaw puzzle going in there. And um, these 19.5 latitude lineup you've mentioned, which is not something I'm familiar with at, at, at all, um, probably would have, you know, somebody who is studying it would find more of a bearing on it if they recognize these different elements manifesting it have consciousness. So there's possibly some some hookup there um, that enables those consciousnesses to to work together or I don't know. I'm, I'm, it, it's a very new thing to me and um, I can't I can't give you any additional comment to it other than to say that in a in a recognizing a living universe is going to make them easier to understand. That's fine. And speaking of the ancient ones, some of the ancient monuments prominently display the sun and the stars. Do you think they were communicating with the sun or, or channeling energies? Do you think it is possible for us to communicate with it? I think I think so, yeah. That's, that's my top of the head. But I, I certainly, as I touched on earlier, I think those monuments were early communications technology. I mean, we've got great communications technology today as well. And, but, I, but I do believe that Stonehenge and the pyramids of Egypt and the Mayas and the, some of the buildings you find in, in Khmer were, um, were technological devices that were used to channel energies back and forth. So, yeah, I think they were. It, and, I think it is possible. And do you think that by staying indoors all the time, and, and you know how busy lives, we, we go home, we get in our cars, we go to work, and we're hardly out in the sun anymore. You think it's a negative thing to not connect with the sun this way? I think, I think it's a really, I think we're really losing out by not connecting with our world. And I'm, I'm blessed with a gorgeous garden in my house. And I get out in that as much as I can because, because I am part of this world. And I, I love my laptop. I love our communications our technology. Um, it's fantastic. It's empowering. It's enriching. It's informative. But it hasn't got the same vibrational content, the same effect that you get when your feet are on the grass, when you're hugging a tree, when you're soaking in sunlight, when you're looking at the clouds drifting across the sky, when you're having the rain hit your body. I mean, those are all real connects with the world. There's information being downloaded to us there that we don't, you know, different type of information from what I get from my MacBook. And I mean, that's one enhances the other, but, but missing that it's, it's making us less of a human being and, and less of a real animal, a part of our, our world. And I, I always go back to the, I, I was you know, incredulous when I realized during the, the tsunami um, in Sri Lanka and Thailand that all the animals but the only animal that didn't run for high ground us. was us. Yes. And, and that's the sort of, because we're not in touch with our world on, at that level. And, 
And we can be, you know, we have the facilities to do that, but they haven't been used for many generations. There were some Aborigines who did. They, they expected they would all be dead when they went to this one, one island and um, with indigenous population on it. And, and they weren't. They were all there. And they said, well, how did you know the tsunami was coming? Oh, we listened to the birds. Mm. <laughs> so, so I think it's really, it's, it's not just important, it's enriching. It's, it's great for us to, to be out in, in the world. And I, you know, God bless David Attenborough and the people who go out and film you know, think parts of the world that I could never, ever get to. And I can see lions up close and turtles laying their eggs on the, the beach and all that wonderful stuff. But, you know, I'm quite happy with sparrows and crows and oak trees and the grass in my garden, too. That's all really great. Well, some say that looking, and you seem to, to be an outdoorsy kind of person, some say that looking straight at the sun one hour before sunrise or one hour before sunset has a positive effect. I know you started sun gazing after writing the book. What have you found? And has it had any effect on you? It's empowering. It's enriching. Um, yeah, it's, it's made me feel more vital, um, stronger. Um, it's, yeah, yes, it has had an effect on me. I mean, I think it, it has, I, 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 Some of the extreme sun gazers profess to being able to, um, to, to not eating, to getting their nutrition direct from that light. And I, I can't, I don't rule anything out. That sounds pretty far out to me. Um, but far be it from me to condemn something is too far out. Um, obviously all the, yeah, there's a whole vegetable section of our world that does take in food directly from sunlight. I mean, that's what plants do. Sunlight, air, and water is what the plant world is made up of. We tend to think it's coming out of the ground, but it's not. The ground provides to plants the equivalent of what we get from vitamins and minerals, which, as you know, is, is a tiny part of our food, Right. the vitamin mineral content, however essential it might be. Um, and with plants it is sunlight air and water and when you when you burn uh you know you, you when you have a fire and you put logs in the fire through the night in the morning that little bit of ashes that are left over that's what came out of the ground the rest is sunlight air and water um so yeah maybe maybe i'm going to have a tangent here but maybe sun gazers can convert that light directly into a human body but But that's not something I want to do because I love my food. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Although, and you were a food expert, uh, soil nutrients have been depleted for decades now. How do we replenish what's been lost? I'll start growing organically. It's as easy as that. But the uh, soil, the soil, what do you put in the soil if the soil has been depleted from nutrients? Well, you start treating it with respect because, uh. the, and, and, and bacteria. I mean, it's one of the things my brother is doing now is a product called Grochar, which is a carbon with the, a really healthy soil bacteria in it. And bacteria, as we know, they're amazing what they are able to do. And um, there's, I read a fantastic account of a New England farm that was a really barren, wasted land that after 10 years of organic farming was just absolutely rich, 
and, and productive, you know, producing you know, vegetables and grains and beans and chickens and pigs and everything coming out of this incredibly rich soil. And the more they took out of it, the richer the soil became because they were working organically. And that's so, you know, if you've got that base of soil, if it blows away, then you're in deep shit. If it can, you know, like as they did in the Dust Bowl and you're down to rock, then you've got to wait centuries for the rocks to break. Sorry, for the bacteria to break rocks down into soil again and get that process going. But it's um, it, it can it can be restored very quickly, by which I mean, you know, 5, 10, 20 years, you can really change the nature of the soil and get all that stuff back in there. You said something a few minutes ago that uh, most star systems are have a, a partner. And uh, I can only think of our closest star here, the Sirius star system. Is that our sun's partner? Um, I believe so. Um, I, I never, I, I only believe so because uh, Walt, a man named Walter Cruttenden interviewed me for his, a little radio show he does on the internet last year. And he said, hey, Greg, I want to send you a copy of my book. And um, and he did. And, and I, I, grown, I, I, I had a little bit of an inner groan at the time because people I've got a whole stack of unread books that people have given me that I couldn't get through. Um, and I devoured his book. And it, it really did convince me beyond beyond the shadow of a doubt for me that Sirius is the partner star of our son. And that our son's position was serious um, over the cycle of many thousands of, of years. The procession of the equinoxes has a, a major effect on the course of civilization on Earth. The, the relative influence of one star to another, which gets back to your questions on what what the influence of the sun is to us, um, is underlined by the fact that Sirius and its position has a big effect on us relative to, to where ours, to where the sun is. So, um, so yeah, I think that is our partner's star. Most, most astronomers don't think the sun has a, has, is part of a binary system, but, um, it seems pretty obvious that it is and that Sirius is that. And which is why the Egyptians were so, excuse me, serious about Sirius. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. And of course, let's not forget uh, theories like uh, Zachariah Sitchin about the brown dwarf, Nibiru, Planet X, call it what you want. Yep. But uh, this is an open invitation for Mr. Walter Cruttenden. I've heard great things about you and uh, I'd like to have you on the show. But let's take a quick intermission. The book, Son of God. The self-organizing consciousness that underlies everything. How do people buy it? How do people get in touch with uh, more of your work, Gregory? Um, well, the book is on sale through Amazon. Um, borders. It's been in some, any, any bookstore can order it in Amer North America, England, Australia. But it's also all online books. Booksellers have it, and if you Google. Son of God, S-U-N of God, it's it's right up at the top there. And we have uh, links on our website as well. Folks, don't go anywhere. We're here with Gregory Sams. We have a lot more information to talk about. As I always say, a lot of people are demythologizing history because history has, has been mythologized. And on part two of this show, I'd like to start talking about that too. This is Mel Fabregas, and you are listening to Veritas. I'm here with Gregory Sams. Don't go anywhere.
Thank you very much for listening. We're going to talk more with our special guest in our members section. If you're not a member, just head on over to our website, veritasshow.com, and click on the subscribe link to listen to the rest of the show. As a member, have you subscribed to the iTunes link? Let iTunes download all segments of each new show automatically. There's a link in the members section. Just click on it and let iTunes do the rest. We'll take a short intermission, listen to some music, and we'll be right back with more. Enjoy. People out the earth, can you hear me? Came a voice from the sky on a magical night. And in the colors of a thousand sunsets, they traveled to the world on a silvery light. The people of the earth stood waiting, watching as the ships came one by one. Setting fire to the sky as they landed, carrying to the world children of the sun. Children of the sun. Once came a sound from inside Then a beam of light hit the ground Everyone felt the sound of their heartbeat Every man, every woman, every child They pierced the limits of imagination To the door, to the world of another Journey of a thousand lifetimes with the children of the sun, they started to cry.
This is Sonia Barrett, and you are listening to the Veritas Radio Show. Mm-hmm. 